Hello, everyone, and welcome to Thed Talks. This is Season 2, Episode 7 of the podcast, and I am Jimmy Chrisman, your host of Thed Talks. Thed Talks is a podcast for theater teachers and theater education students. Each week, I want to bring you stories and interviews from experienced K-12 theater teachers, current theater education majors, and professors of theater education that will warm your heart, renew your faith in teaching, and provide resources to better your practice in your theater classroom. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. I appreciate you listening. I do want to let you know that I'm super excited about this interview. Brian Smallwood and I had a fantastic conversation uh, back in the beginning of the summer when he was still living in Utah, and now he is currently at James Madison University as their technical director, and uh, I am super excited to have you hear our conversation. He is going to bring you lots of information, lots of tips and tricks that you can use in your classroom for those of us who are non-technical theater people, um, specifically how to work with a technical director and allowing them to be a part of the storytelling that you are doing on stage. And more importantly, one of my favorite parts of the conversation was his conversation about teacher burnout. So I know you're going to want to tune in for that. And uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian. You will notice that uh, in parts of the interview, there's a little flutter sound in the, in the, the sound quality. And I do apologize for that, but, um, I think what he has to say is so important. And I do hope you can look past that and, and really get to the heart of what he's saying. And, uh, I don't think it'll impede on understanding what he's saying. So, uh, again, I apologize and please forgive me for that, but I, I do hope you enjoy the conversation. So here's my conversation with Brian Smallwood. Well, I'm excited to welcome to Fed Talks my next guest, Brian Smallwood. Uh, Brian is a tech director currently in uh, Utah, but will be moving to James Madison University in August. Um, and I'm going to let him introduce himself to you and kind of give the the abridged version of his journey to where we are now. So, Brian, welcome to the show, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm currently working with Simon Fest up in uh, Utah, but uh, my full-time job for the past five years has been to serve as the assistant professor and technical director for the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, before teaching, I was in New York for about 10 years. Um, I was a carpenter at Juilliard, uh, then a master carpenter at NYU's third year graduate scene shop, which is an important distinction to make because they've got like three uh, and then uh, while there, I was working with a bunch of independent off-Broadway theater companies and started a company with some colleagues called No Time for Love Productions, which was aptly named at the time. Uh, and uh, while doing all that, um, I was producing and playwriting and uh, sketch comedy acting, stuff like that. Um, technical theater was sort of my, my rock that helped me pay the bills and get the job done. And then it became my passion and something that I really uh, got excited about. Um, I went to grad school in 2010 at the Yale School of Drama uh, because we got pregnant with my son and I went, oh my God, I have to drop everything and go to grad school right now or he's gonna be thinking that I'm not around in formative years. Um, and while there we had my daughter Amelia, which is great. So now um, I, I consider myself sort of uh, a professor, slash parents slash theater animal type person um at james madison i'll be starting as an associate professor and production manager which is great um ruben the chair out there worked really hard to create the position i'm really excited to start that up and see what it ends up being well that's fantastic um i uh I, i'd love to know a little bit um a little bit about your uh what what 
maybe what caused, or maybe there were several things that kind of led to your shift and um, being in, uh, a director, writer, producer into uh, the technical side. Sure, sure. Um, well, and I'll, I'll be the first to say that um, if you are ever a writer, you probably still are. It's just you're not actively writing at the moment. I'm sure some writers will disagree with me on that, but um, so I don't think that those parts of me are gone. Uh, when you're starting sort of scrappy productions and you're doing your own plays, one of the best ways to get things produced is to hook them up yourself. And uh, that means there's a lot of all hands on deck. Um, I would pull a lot of actor colleagues to come in and help out. We'd have other playwrights, directors, whatever, diving in to help. And uh, what I found is that uh, playwriting and producing and technical direction and, and production all share something, which is that you're creating the opportunity for other people to do what it is that they love to do, right? If you're a playwright, you're giving the lines to the actors. If you're the producer, you're creating the entire event. Uh, and as a technical director, you're facilitating design. You're also giving directors a space to play in. And I've always really appreciated that part of the collaboration and um, being able to contribute to sort of something bigger than myself. Um, so that's sort of how it got started. Um, I also really like the creative problem solving that comes with it. Um, there are, I often talk to people in the sort of other manufacturing industries about the fact that theater is basically a prototyping industry. It's just the prototype is the product, right? You're constantly coming up with new creative solutions to new problems as new challenges come up. Um, and there's something really refreshing and exciting about that. Um, I think that it engages your sort of outside the box thinking in a way that a lot of other industries don't. Um, and I think that that's also true for, you know, playwriting and uh, producing, right? You, get, you have to deal with all these crazy variables and you have to think outside the box to solve them. So um, I don't know, that's always been interesting to me, just um, really engaging in that way. Well, what, um, because I mean, obviously I, 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 my, my podcast is for, for theater teachers and people in in theater education and I'm not, um, I, I, I know that you are teaching as well in, in, in what you'll be doing and what you have been doing. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about where, um, where those areas tend to overlap with, 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 uh, your technical direction and, and then the educator in you? Yeah, well, um. You know, what I found is, you know, when I was working at, I was very fortunate when I was working at Juilliard and NYU because those were educational environments. So there was sort of inherently some mentorship going on there. Um, so what I find is that um, everything that we do in technical theater blends directly into the goals of STEM based teaching objectives, right? You're dealing with math, you're dealing with engineering. Uh, in some cases, depending on specific effects, you might actually start dealing with chemistry and use, like a lot of different sciences as well. Um, I don't like I could go off on water in production and the chemistry that goes into that. I'm going to stop on that note, just inspire people to go that way on their own. Um, but uh, the other thing that's really key about it is that uh, I'm finding more and more that our goals when we're teaching students is to at least at the academic level, to make them hireable when they leave, right? Inspire them to go do great things, let them go and engage in the industry at a level that's going to be exciting and hopefully rewarding for them. Uh, and even at a high school level, trying to engage people and bring them into an industry, uh, it, it's a tough thing to sort of have people figure out um, whether or not it's going to play out that way or not. Uh, what I like to do is think about what the objectives of industry 
are and see how theater connects with them and makes it happen, right? They're looking for people who understand budgeting. They're looking for people who can uh, uh, deal with difficult personalities. They're looking for passion. They're looking for drive. All that's there. And also in technical theater, there's a process, right? You can't paint the scenery before it's been cut and assembled, right? You might be able to paint components to make things more efficient, but that's a decision you have to make. Like, when is that going to happen? Um, so even just thinking through, okay, what's the step-by-step -step operation on this? Um, what are the, where are the, the uh, choke points in terms of how this is going to get done and where is it going to be tricky? Um, I often try to take uh, approaches in technical theater that then become approaches in life. So for example, when I take on a project, I always try to find the thing that scares me the most and start that start there. And that's usually the thing I understand the least or the thing that I had the least experience in, um, rather than going, well, I'm going to do everything that I know and then get to the thing, right? It's just that becomes sort of a, a way to tackle life in a way, right? If you hold off on the scary stuff, you're just giving yourself less time to deal with it, right? Um, so in that way, I think that it plays out in a big way. Um, I think that when it comes to teaching the storytelling of a piece, it's really important to include that in the conversation about technical theater. We're not just uh, contractors, right? Um, one of my best examples of this, there was a, a student of mine when I was teaching at uh, ASU for a year. His name's Tom Lytle. We were working on a show called Dog Act. And uh, there's this big cart that rolls in. And it's this vaudevillian cart. The players have everything they need on it. And it sort of travels with them nonstop. And he was putting together the technical design of it and started looking for opportunities for, for the actors to sort of scurry up and down it to help create the notion that like, oh, that weird handle that's over here has a purpose. Oh, that weird, you know, we, what if we've used uh, towel racks to, you know, they use it as a ladder. And he was trying to engage and give the director opportunity. And that level of engagement is my favorite kind of technical director. The one who says, I don't, you know, just tell me what it is that you need isn't as exciting to me as the person who hears where you're going and uses their expertise to bring it in. I think that that, that in itself, that bringing of yourself to the technical process is also a, a, a great place for that teaching to be. Because I think that um, students don't understand their own agency a lot of times. And that becomes a way for them to be able to engage creatively. Yeah, I have... Uh, I, uh... Speaking, I want to I want to touch on what you were just talking about as far as um, mm -hmm. bringing the the technical director into your conver into the the conversation of the storytelling and because uh, uh, I I am probably very similar to many uh, theater teachers out there that that they don't have this tech person they don't have a tech director um, and they are they're their one man show um, so for those teachers who may be just beginning to work with someone who maybe the school has hired a technical director for their school or maybe their booster club has found the funds for them to hire someone to come in and, and TD their, their big spring musical. Um, for those teachers, um, I know the communication with that person is, is so important and the, uh -huh. the, the language uh, that a director speaks sometimes is different than the tech director. Um, so can yes. you talk a little bit about that communication process and for those teachers beginning that and maybe some tips and pointers for them as they communicate with that person? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Well, um, one of the things that I think you're, you're speaking to is that when you're dealing with someone like this for the first time, you don't have a frame of reference. You don't have history, right? You're just engaging at the get-go. And um, 
I think the first thing to do um, is try to understand the individual. Um, what I tell my graduate students or um, what I've been training them is that when you are dealing with a new director, you have this very narrow window at the beginning to establish trust between a director and a technical director. So what I like to do for starters is um, my, my philosophy is that all stress comes from misaligned expectations. Think it over, you'll see. But um, what that means is that at the beginning, you can take time to actually align expectations, right? So what I like to do is start by saying, hi, you know, my name is Brian. This is what I'm doing. This is my job. This is my role. Uh, as a technical director, the way that I tend to work is, and I walk people through the way that I tend to work. I like to have a budgeting phase. I'm going to present you with an estimate. When that's done, I expect the estimate to be high. That's fine. We'll have a conversation about how to bring it in. Once that's done, we'll consider that sort of the plan. I'll expect to hear from you in the rehearsal process to make some adjustments. When those come in, I won't just say yes. I might say, I need a day to think about it. I'll get back to you. I'll give you what uh, what's affordable and what my suggestion is in terms of making it happen. As we move forward and we get closer and closer, it's going to be harder and harder for me to make changes because we're running out of time and money. And then by the time it opens, I'll be there to maintain blah, blah, blah. Um, I like to do things like describe what I'm like when I get stressed, right? So I can say, you know, I'm generally a pretty outgoing, bouncy kind of guy, but when I'm stressed, I'm going to get cool, calm, and collected. And people mistake that for thinking that I'm pissed off. And it's not that I'm pissed off. I'm just juggling a bunch of different things, so don't take it personally. Simple things like that so that people know what to expect from me. Um, and then you ask them to do the same, right? Walk. What do you expect this to be? And you'll hear things like, oh, well, you know, I've been a technical director for 20 years. I got this figured out. Or, well, I've never really done this before, and I'm really excited to figure it out with you. And, like, just those two answers help you figure out how you're going to navigate this relationship and how, you know, what types of things you're going to need to communicate. Um, generally speaking, uh, technical directors tend to prefer to talk in drawings. So rather than saying, so just give me a flat, make it like 8 by 12, technical directors will say, just give me a drawing because it's more specific. Um, but beyond that, uh, you know, questions like, do you expect them to get involved with painting? Are there going to be other people helping out? When are they going to be helping out? Um, how much money is there? This is a, this is a, a hot button one because you'll hear a lot of different discussion points on it. Um, some people think that you tell people less than what you have so that when things go over, you've got sort of a stockpile left you can sort of throw at it. I think that's a little disingenuous. Um, and I think that uh, it's harder to budget a show that way because you're starting to start making these compromises and then someone says, oh, this isn't looking as nice. Here, let's give you an extra 200 bucks. They go, you have an extra 200 bucks? Where did that come from? Um, and also when you throw more money at something, there's usually more hours that then have to be put in. Right, so just cause like, oh, we got an extra 200 bucks, put it in there. Well, now that person's working an extra 20 hours or something to use that 200 bucks well. So being upfront about what that looks like, um, being upfront about what your time frame is, uh, if you present a design that is a five-week build and you've got two weeks to build, don't be surprised if they come back and say, I don't know if we can fit this all in at the same time at this level. But then have conversations about what you know what's really important to you in the storytelling, right? This element absolutely has to be there like this. Everything else is gravy. is helpful, right? Um, I want the body of the set 
oh, we don't need the deep level of detail. I'll come back in with a Sharpie and add the detail later. Oh, okay, that's helpful. So just your expectations, how you expect it to go, what's important to you in storytelling. And um, many technical directors will tell you, don't take budgets personally. Um, <laughs> it's not that we don't like the choice, we're just trying to afford it. Um, so I hope that that helps in a way. Um, I would also say that um, if you're encountering things, if you're in a situation where you don't have a technical person and you are the technical person and you're facing that problem for the first time, uh, no technical director that I know of has made it to where they are entirely on their own. Right? When I mentioned before that I'll sometimes face a challenge I've never faced before. Well, somebody has, right? Someone's put on a show like this show or this show exactly and faced these challenges. And it's uh, generally speaking a pretty generous community. So reaching out and saying, hey, listen, I see that you know your school worked on this. How did you tackle this problem? People tend to be pretty cool about trying to share and get us all through it because we all at the end of the day are a community. You might find some people who are going, oh, it's proprietary, in which case find somebody else. Uh, <laughs> that, that happens sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that I work with the uh, United States Institute of Theater Technology, USITT, uh, as well as the Southeastern Theater Conference, STTC. And there's just tons of people in those communities who are very eager to help out. And, and uh, those can be great resources to try and tack that, uh, track down other ways to do things. If you're not connected to those, find a contractor around, right? One of the things that we forget working in live entertainment is that to the sort of civilians out there it's really glamorous you know we had uh, um we needed a whole bunch of trees for a cherry orchard we were doing we hit up the parks department for nevada and they would oh yeah no we've got tons of trees that we're cutting down should we bring them to you and we would yeah you could bring them to us and, oh this is great and they're like can we get a picture of the trees in the show and like that's the payoff you know it's just because it's our day to day we don't understand um how important it could be for other people to contribute in that way um, so I would say seek out those community members as well, the people who would be eager to help out, and then um, don't abuse them because you'll probably have another show, and it's really great to go back to the same people <laughs> and have a positive relationship. Yeah. Uh, is that helpful? It is very much so. Thank you. Um, speaking of sharing, uh, do you have any of your favorite uh, technical theater tips and tricks uh, for those of us who are non-technical theater people who might could benefit from your expertise? Sure, sure. Um, the first thing I'd like to, to mention um, is that when you're working on putting together a show, um, if you can find things that exist before uh, and repurpose them, stock, it's a great way to stretch your budget, right? So if you're going to build something for a show and you've got the choice between building it like really kind of uh, rando, crazy angles, that sort of thing, or building something a little more modular, especially on a lower budget environment, I encourage people to use each show to build a stock, right? Storage is usually a problem, but if you can, it means that suddenly a $500 show looks like a $1,500 show, looks like a $3,000 show because you've got that infrastructure. Um, I also think uh, a lot of times um, people underestimate uh, the importance of rigging safely. So people will... Um, put things overhead with whatever will do the job without thinking about what can happen. And what I like to say is that uh, if it's heavy enough that you wouldn't want it to fall on you, like 
you know, it, it's above you, you wouldn't want it to drop on you. Really know what you're doing before you start moving forward. Um, if you're going to hang things that are heavy, 100 pounds, 50 pounds, something like that, um, it may be worth consulting with a local contractor or a rigger if you're in a more active area, see if they can make sure that what you're doing is looking good. Um, I have this rule about flying people. I don't fly people without help. And um, the, it's not just about with people around space. I mean, technically, if you have someone sitting on a swing, they're flying, right? They're floating off the ground. So we had a show with the lira involved, so those rings that the suspend and the, the acrobats sort of play within them. And we had to suspend it. Uh, and I reached out to Tracy Nunnally, who's over at Vertigo. Um, he's also uh, just this fabulous, fabulous teacher, a uh, great guy. And said, listen, we're doing this. Could you take a look at it? And he consulted with us, uh, used his company name, and sort of took a look at it to make sure everything was OK. Um, another tip that I'll say is that a lot of times um, people will try to do things that they've never done before um, without consulting. And I just think that it, you got to know your own personal limits. We often see ourselves as service into the, serve, uh, serving the story. And sometimes that means like, well, I don't know if this is a good idea, but the story needs it, so I'm going to move forward. And I think that's the dangerous area. So know your own limits. If you go, geez, I, you know, they want me to build a platform that's eight feet tall and have people walking on it. I don't know anything about that. That right there is the indication that you shouldn't be doing it on your own and you should be engaging people and know what they're doing. Everybody sleeps better when we do that, right? Um, technical direction tricks uh man i like to, it's there's there's a lot of stuff out there that and a lot of different needs so i'm going to mention some of the basics um when you're building a wall something like a flat and uh it's bigger than four by eight uh i like to recommend um, picking up seams with uh the, my buddy ted Krauss over at university of arizona told me on this um you'll be framing things with sort of thinner material and then at the seam put in a two by four bigger than you need, but it'll pick up the seam and keep things nice and clean, consistent. Um, I'm a big fan. If you haven't already looked into this, you can get these at Home Depot for 200 bucks. So you might get your principal behind it. Um, don't assemble things with screws and screw guns. Try to get pneumatic tools, like air staplers, that sort of thing. It just expedites things so fast. I was just talking, most of my labor force here in Utah is students who haven't done stuff before. And they were commenting on how having air-powered tools meant that they could go from, I've never done this before, to banging out flats super fast. Um, so it's, it's just a great investment and something that I think um, is a skill set that people will want in the long game anyway. Harbor Freight sells the, the nailers for like $30 at this time. And they had a sale. I bought one for $5. So, I mean, it, it's a great way to sort of build up a, a, a tight infrastructure that way. Um, I also like to buy tools cheap when I'm starting. Uh, that way, if students destroy them, I'm not sort of all upset about it. And if it's something that I've never done before, I'll start with the cheap tool until I burn it out. And then if I burnt it out, clearly I'm doing it enough that it's, <laughs> it's enough that I should get something new. Um, but it, it sort of gets away from that, like, I spent $3,000 on a welder and I don't weld anymore. You know, that's sort of a sort of a thing. Um, so yeah, I, I also think uh, from a, a technical direction standpoint, when you're looking at a project, don't just think about the materials cost. Think about linear time 
and how much time you're going to be able to put into it. I call it budgeting labor. Right? It's not like I, it's not a proprietary term. It's what people do. Uh, but a lot of times we'll say, you know, we got $2,000 for the entire season. What are we going to do? And you say, well, listen, that's, that's great. We actually have two weekends to build <laughs> the entire season. So uh, that, that $2,000 might be spent more on more finished things rather than things that we're going to fabricate. Right. Um, so I, I hope those are sort of helpful. Do you have other types of, of areas that you would like tips pertain, like, you know? No, no, I, I, I think that's all great advice. Uh, I, I particularly like, and I wish I had uh, heard that before um, I started stocking my tools was about getting the cheap tools first. And uh, mm -hmm. because you're absolutely right, like a high school kid's going to leave it in the theater and then it's going to be picked up by a janitor and you're never going to see it again. Or, you know, they're mm -hmm. going to do it the wrong way and it's going to break. So I, I, that's fantastic advice. And it's just so easy that I never even thought of it. So thank you. <laughs> well, and the other thing I'll say on that topic is um, generally speaking, if you're doing it with a cheaper tool, it's probably not as high quality or it doesn't have all the bells and whistles, right? So if you can do it with that, when you eventually get the high end thing, you're like, oh my God, I appreciate this so much more because now I understand all the extra bells and whistles rather than starting going, I don't even know where to start with. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Thank you. Um, I do want to shift gears just a little bit and, uh, and talk about your, uh, your, your work and your research in burnout and combating yes. that. Um, I am very eager to hear whatever you have to say about that. And I'm sure many teachers out there are as well. So talk to me about your sure. experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and um, I, I really want to preface this by saying that, um, you know, I'm in no way a therapist and I am no psychologist. You know, this is just information I've pulled um, from a lot of other resources, which is sort of how theater works anyway, right? We see what other people are doing, we adapt it to our own needs. Um, and I, I'm working with um, some colleagues. Uh, there's a guy named Brian Kirk and uh, there's uh, Melissa Johnston. They're over, um, we, we're working together and starting an organization called the Arts Wellness Group. And it's to start this conversation nationally and really figure out what's going on. Um, I guess the, the first thing I want to say is why I'm into it, right? Because you know, I'm a technical director. Why, why would you be going down this road? I'm, you know, like I said before, I'm not like a company manager or something. Um, technical direction is one of those fields where um, this is a strength and weakness of the industry. You're likely to give of yourself to the show, right? Um, oh, hey, we don't have this. And you're likely to just push a little bit harder to make sure that the extra things come in. You really want the story to be told, you're really passionate. So what ends up happening is um, people push themselves really, really hard and don't stop. Um, and uh, I've watched technical directors um, uh, in my, my own experience uh, die early. Um, one died of cancer, another died of cancer, another died of an accident. Uh, uh, and these are all things that um, the research that I'm seeing sort of links exhaustion and pushing yourself too hard to these areas. Uh, now, I'm not going to say that those were the reasons, but it was enough of a catalyst for me to say, okay, we got we to take a look at this. Um, and for starters, uh, if you're feeling exhausted and you're feeling like, oh my God, I'm so burnt out right now, um, you should know that you're not alone. Um, there's tons of research that I've been drawing from other industries because it seems to be um, a problem that is both uh, 
an American problem and a global economy problem, sort of how do we, you know, the, there are nations trying to figure this out. So um, just know that you're not alone for starters. Most of what I'm finding suggests that um, we as human beings um, are really capable of exceptional things, but um, there, there's limits to what we can do, right? Um, I'll give you an example on this. Uh, you know, if for the sake of discussion, someone were to say to you, hey, listen, we're going to build this show and we want you to not eat for three days. Hmm. People would immediately go, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Don't eat. I can't produce under those circumstances. What are you talking about? It's ridiculous. We're going to eat. But when you start saying things like, hey, listen, we really need to get this done. I need you to not sleep. For some reason, that's more palatable. You start getting into like, oh, I'll pull longer hours. I can stick around, right? Ah, maybe I'll pull an all-nighter tonight to sort of get this done. Um, and I, I like to equate this to, you know, if, if you ever um, heard the expression, I'm not a machine, or heard someone say, I don't get what they're asking me to do, I'm not a machine. Um, well, it turns out we kind of are, because um, machines have limits too, right? You can't uh, get a, a car to run indefinitely without fuel, right? Same thing, we gotta eat, right? Um, you can't get uh, a car to run indefinitely without changing the oil and doing the maintenance, right? Same thing with us, we gotta maintain our bodies, you gotta exercise, right? Um, and there's also something that motors have called a duty cycle, which has nothing to do with digestion, thanks for it. Um, and a, a duty cycle is basically the amount of time that it can run before it has to stop and cool down and get going. Um, I, I was talking to someone who's in the uh, father worked in a printing press and the printing press could run for 12 hours, but then would have to stop and they'd have to reset and do everything they need to do and then fire it back up so that it wouldn't tear itself apart. Um, and I've seen this, uh, this notion of a duty cycle paid attention to uh, different production areas, right? Um, Fashion week in New York is this sort of like crazy 72 hour experience and they'll budget multiple screw guns with the expectation that they will use one until it overheats and burns out. And then they'll pick up a new one and go because the linear time is so important, right? So even machines have limits before they're gonna flame out. Um, but for some reason, we just sort of have these expectations that like, if I assign something to you, you will therefore have to deal with it because I assigned it to you, right? And without paying attention to the limits. Um, so the kinds of things that we need to pay attention to, um, for starters, uh, you know, it, the basics, right? Eating and sleeping. Um, if you don't pay attention to those things, uh, sleep in particular, there's a lot of research um, started by the military and trucking and fire departments because people are dying on the way home, right? Like the, um, more firefighters uh, are dying from cancer than in fires. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, car wrecks on the way home because they're exhausted. What ends up happening is if you go without sleep, you start effectively um, having a blood alcohol content, right? Like you, your decision making is as if you have a blood alcohol content, um, which means that if you're building things, you're using power tools drunk, right? And if you're making decisions, you're making decisions drunk. <laughs> Right, which like no one would make that recommendation, um, but especially as educators, you know, if we're working with students, um, we don't want to be making decisions without cool, calm, collected sort of thinking, right? 
Um, hey, should I climb up there and get that? Is not something that you want to answer when you're stressed and flushed and just trying to get the job done. You want to be able to think about it, right? Um, so that those are key parts. Um, I recently, uh, I'm, I'm a, beyond everything else I've described, I'm also an OSHA outreach instructor. And uh, I found a correlation. OSHA sees safety as um, a two-part problem. On one part, the management has to pay attention and enforce and and expect safe uh, work environment. On the other end, the employee has to follow the safety guidelines and be safe on the job and, and pay attention to those things and they need to be communicated. I think burnout is a two-part problem too. Um, and you know, the, the, the employers out there will say, oh, well, listen, you know, if it comes to self-care and like getting sleep and if you're tired, you should just tell me. Right, like when I ask you to work a 16-hour day, you should just tell me you can't. Right, and and that it's, it's on you to take care of your own body and your own wellness. The employee will say, "Well, no, it's on the employer. You shouldn't be asking me to do 16 hours because, of course, if you ask me, I'm going to say yes because you're my boss and the environment, and the power structure. And you know, if I say no, are you not going to hire me back? Right, like all that stuff comes into play. So what basically happens is everyone's pointing at everybody else to solve the problem when the reality is everybody needs to do it. So on one end, if an employer comes in and says, okay, we're going to try and do, you know, we're going to try and run this in a safe, balanced way, the employee shouldn't be going, okay, well then if I, you know, if I'm going to have to work eight hours today, then tonight I'm going to work this other gig and like, you know, push themselves to that level. Uh, but on the flip side, the employer needs to be making decisions that are going to look out for the best interests of the employee. Um, because really it's about being able to do your best work, right? Um, how does this translate to teachers? Well, um, for starters, what we're expecting our students to do and what we're modeling for our students. If the students see us going, listen, everybody else go home, I'm gonna stick around for six hours to get this done. The students are learning that, oh, if I'm going to succeed at this, I need to be that. I need to push myself that hard. And whatever it is that you hate about your life, in terms of like, oh my God, why am I doing eight extra hours on top of everything else? You're teaching them that that is what success looks like. Um, so I think that, that that's one thing we need to be mindful of. Um, the next thing that I think is really important is, uh, you know, we already, in education in particular, we've got so many expectations on our time anyway. So when we start doing our own productions, that's an area we actually have some agency in, right? That's an area where we can manage how big it is and how involved it's going to be. Um, and I, this is something I routinely call scope management. Again, I didn't coin the term, but it's the idea of like, if you're picking your season and you pick Little Shop of Horrors and you're not sitting on a plan, you are asking for a really big and involved project. So pick your projects. Yes, about the storytelling. Yes, about the educational experience. Yes, about what the students will get out of it, but also with what you can do in mind. Um, you can do little shop of horrors without a plant if you decide to find an artful, sort of creative way to solve the problem. But you're certainly not going to produce the Broadway level little shop of horrors by yourself with students who have never done this before, right? Um, so I think that that's a, a key part of it. If you're at a particularly well-funded school, look at rental, right? Rental packages for really big involved, most musicals that you wanna do, someone has done before. And there's a rental package out there that might cost more money, 
it will save you the time and energy and the stress. Um, <clears throat> and it's really hard when you're starting too to figure out what your own limits are. Um, I think that it's really important to pay attention um, when you feel moments of stress, um, pay attention to what time of day it is, pay attention to whether or not you've eaten, um, pay attention to what's going on in your life right now. If you're feeling stressed at the end of you know, the school year, yeah, you might be feeling stressed. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Um, the other thing I want to say on it is that uh, if you're going to do something that's particularly involved or particularly, it's going to push really hard, you can do that as long as you build in a recovery period afterwards. Um, there's a company uh, who basically they, they make their money in this like one week period, all right? They basically show up and do like shareholder events. And every day for that week is a 16 hour day because you're gonna have this one hour where your company is gonna make hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it has to, it has to go perfectly. Let's go absolutely perfectly. So in that week leading up, people are pushing, pushing the testing and double checking and making sure that race is going to work. They're putting in redundancy. Super, super stressful. They recognize that that week, and I mean, if you think about seven, 16-hour days, that's a lot, right? That's a lot of time. They recognize that that week is so important that they will give people months leading up to that week to sort of handle things the way they want to handle it. And when you finish that week, they'll keep you, they will pay you, but give you time off right away. We're going to give you two weeks off to just go and decompress and reset yourself, right? We need to think that way in terms of our own schedules and our own cadence and, and our, the way that we're looking at things. You can pull a 24-hour day, right? You can push yourself for 16 hours. You can't do it indefinitely. Um, there are some great statistics out there that I've found. Um, one suggests that, um, I want to say it's five, I'll double check, but five 60-hour weeks are as productive as five 40-hour weeks. And the reason is that you start working less efficiently, you start making bad decisions. Um, I like to describe this, uh, you know, I had this one gig, I was working really late, and I was at this thing, I was like, okay, I need a hammer. And I walked away from the project, went to the tool cage, looked at the tool cage and went, the hell did I come here for? Hmm. And then went back to the project, went right, a hammer, turned around, went back, got the hammer, came back and did the thing. Well, all that was wasted time, right? Very inefficient. And if I had really been thinking, I would have gotten the hammer when I started because I would have thought it through, right? So um, those are the things that suddenly make these weeks less efficient. Um, another uh, aspect of this uh, is that they said that three 80-hour weeks are as effective or as efficient as three 40 hour weeks so like if you think about that 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 really says you should be going home like you're not going to get any more done and there's a lot of anecdotal stories about this you know people who decide they're going to push through till three in the morning to get something done and they wake up the next morning and look at it and go what the heck is this and they have to undo what they did just to keep things going and like that's all wasted time um, I think it comes from the stress, like it makes us feel like we need to be active and we need to be moving. It's like uh, the difference between, you know, it takes you 15 minutes to get home in traffic, but 30 minutes to get home, but you're still moving. Some people will say, I'd rather take 30 minutes to get home and just feel like I'm moving, right? I think it's sort of connected to that feeling um, of productivity and activity. Uh, 
But that's one of the things that I think is really important is to sort of plan out how your week's going to go and then trust the plan. Because if you're starting to get tired and you start going, well, maybe I'll just stick around it. Like you need something to fall back on because like I said before, you might be making drunk decisions right? and might be going, oh, I'll stick around. And um, most of the big injuries that happen tend to happen after people are exhausted. Right. So it's also making sure that you can continue to do what it is that you care about. Um, when I talk to people, you know, I've done a couple of seminars and I've done a couple of workshops on this. Um, and what's interesting is, and this is outside of theater, it's just like administrators. I would say to people, you need to set limits and then communicate those limits to people and take it from there. And people will get, they look at me like I'm insane. Right? And I had one uh, administrator say to me, listen, I can't just tell people that I'm not going to answer the phone and I'm not going to check my email. Okay, like that's not what, like people will be living. I'm going to lose my job, right? They said, take a look at this administrator. This administrator here, she's in charge of facilities. This administrator couldn't possibly, and that administrator said, oh yeah, no, I totally do that. So was it, yeah, I'm not available between, you know, this window and this window window and I tell them up front they can handle it they'll solve it most things can wait until the next day if it's an emergency like there's a building on fire that's different but that doesn't mean that I make myself unilaterally available and that's one of the things I think comes from it is um, for every time that someone asks you to do something more than you're willing to do um, yes it's really annoying that they ask but did you actually say no hmm. or did you just go well okay and then walk away and go, God, I can't believe what's expected. Um, in my emails, uh, in my signature line, I will say, I check my email twice a day, once in the morning and once in the middle of the day. If you need me more urgently, shoot me a text, right? And that is um, a way of managing people. And, and this happens all the time, right? If you have a cable company and they say, we'll be coming by sometime between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. on Wednesday. You don't go, oh, my God, I can't believe that they can't give me a more precise window. You go, ah, oh, okay. And you make it work. People in the same way, right? I recently saw a thing where I sent in a, a, an email question, and they responded said, we will respond to you within 48 hours. And I went, oh, okay. There are people who I work with who, it, like, the idea of telling someone, let me get back to you in 24 hours, they're like, I, can't, I don't understand how you could do that. That's insane. They, they asked me. They need an answer right now. And it's all about setting these sort of limitations. Um, we're already working with these limitations, right? Like if you're directing a show, you don't expect to tear down the wall of the theater and expand out to the side. You accept that the walls of the theater are a limitation of the space, right? You don't expect you know, to suddenly get $10,000 extra beyond your budget when your budget's 500 bucks because you expect, like, no, this is my limitation. You can set those limits personally about your own time and the way you're going to spend it. Uh, it's just a matter of making sure that it's communicated, right? And that everybody knows what the limitations are as they're trying to move forward. Um, and I, it, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that there are, there are situations out there where people will ask you to adjust your limits. Um, I'm sure that there are situations where people will tell you that it's an emergency and they deal with it. Um, I would say take that on a case-by-case -case basis. But if you constantly say yes, then um, that's going to be one of those circumstances where they'll just assume. They're like, oh, well, yeah, well, 
Brian says that he'll only check his email twice, but you know, uh, I've yelled at him enough, he'll check it all the time, right? Like then the, the limit's not real anymore. Um, sometimes those limitations will be, um, you know, I don't, I don't work on Sunday, right? That's a family day or that's a religious, uh, that's a day of a religious importance to me, I'm not doing it. Um, it might be holidays that you sort of make sacred. Um, but also remember that whatever you're doing in production of the show, the, the idea that um, the show must come first in all things is very common. Like if you heard the expression, the show must go on, right? Well, the show must go on is often used to justify some crazy stuff. Like, listen, we're running way behind. The show opens a week from now, all right? We need to bust butt right now. The show must go on, we gotta do it. Well, I, I did some research and it turns out that um, it actually came from the circus industry. And the intent is that your mid-show, something goes wrong, the show must go on. So like the acrobat misses their mark, falls flat on their face. The band needs to continue and everyone needs to keep going and we need to get through the show, right? So it's like a very immediate, short-term, imminent statement. It's not meant to be like a month from now, the show must go on. So everybody give all of your time and energy for as long as you possibly can to make sure that we get there. Um, so that's part of the, I, I think that what ends up happening is that we're so passionate about what it is that we do. We're so excited about giving the audience a, a really great experience. We're so in, uh, enthralled at the idea of our students getting something out of something that we just bite off more than we can chew reasonably. And we forget that, um, you know, some of the best stories that we hear are told at a bar where there is no set, right? Some of the best stories are the ones that we share at the holidays around a dining table, right? Like simplicity of story isn't a weakness in production, right? It's all about sort of staying true to it in the first place. And I mean, um, I think part of that is sort of wrestling with the, the standard of realism that TV and film do. I think that because that is the way that we get a lot of our information, we're trying to put that over into theater. And um, I think that theater is actually really good at um, giving people just enough that they can play out the rest of it, right? Um, I think about old, uh, like, suspense movies, right, where someone dies off stage, or, like, you know, you see the shadow, and that's all. They don't show you everything. They show you enough that you can put together how awful it is, right? And it, it, it's very visceral and very effective. Um, I think that we can do more of that in theater and solve a lot of problems with creative storytelling. Um, one of my colleagues uh, at ASU used to say, we're going to solve it with story when a problem came up. And I think that there's a lot of, um, lot of value in that in terms of finding great ways to solve problems that don't involve spending tens of thousands of dollars to build the automation and do whatever it is you got to do. Um, so I know I'm sort of rambling all over the place, but I, I think the key thing, if, if there were three takeaways for you, it would be for starters, manage the scope to what it is that you can produce. If you don't know what your scope management is, you know, just keep tabs on how a show goes. If you finish a show and everyone's exhausted and everyone's burnt out, that show was too big, <laughs> right? And like, think about why that went wrong and try to learn from it for next time. Um, the second would be set personal limits, right? Um, if you can manage people's expectations about what it is you're supposed to do, what you're going to do, people will figure that out and they'll work around it. Um, and the last thing is remember that whatever you're asking someone else to do is something that they're learning from, right? So if you're, you know, 
one of my, my least favorite is like, listen, it's Thanksgiving. So I'm going I'm not going to be here. So everybody else be here on Friday to move things forward because the show has to go on. Like that's, that's not fair, right? That's sort of uh, management asking people to do something that they wouldn't themselves do. Um, you know, just think about what it is that you're doing when you build a schedule and uh, when you think about how things are going and try to respect everybody's time outside of work. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that uh, I think many of us go into theater because we're passionate about it and because of the community. And there's, a, there's an identity, our own identity is very much tied into that. Now that's also an American thing. A lot of people really connect their own identity with their work. Mm-hmm. Um, but to that end, it means that people will often forget that your life outside of work is actually what most people work for, <laughs> right? Like most people go to work to fund the things that they're doing, their, their other interests, right? And I think that it's important that we learn from that and try to remember that. Remember that we should be able to have it all. Should be able to work in live entertainment. We should be able to do our storytelling and have that fun. We should also be able to have families. And we should also be able to, you know, pursue art or dance or, you know, build cars or whatever it is that you want to do in your own time on the outside. Um, And it all sort of starts with our own prioritization and remembering that um, we as individuals are just as important as the collective. I think those are fantastic words. And I think uh, I remember my very first year of teaching. I came out of my student teaching. My uh, my cooperating teacher produced 10 shows in the one semester that I was there. Oh, my God. During my student teaching. And I came out thinking, this is how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I came in and I started. And I, luckily for me, I think I did four shows that uh that first year of my teaching um and i kept adding on and 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 then i left that school and started a new school and i said i'm gonna cut back so that i have a life so that i can i I can do better work and i can have a life well i didn't i started started huge and then when you start big like that it's very difficult to go backwards because there's an expectation and um so I, I appreciate those words, and, and, and I think you, you summed it up really beautifully of, of how to prioritize that and what to think about as we're doing that. Yeah, well, and, and I think you're right that you do what you're trained, um, and you do what the culture demands if, you don't, if you're not careful. Um, and I also want to remind everybody, you know, the reason that we're doing these things is that we're passionate, we want to engage with these projects. Um, just remember that if you stretch yourself too thin, you're not doing your best work, mm-hmm. Right. If you double book yourself, someone's getting shortchanged and it's not helping anyone. So if you can't bring your best work to the table, uh, don't bring it because you you know you wouldn't want someone to bring half of a design to your show. You know you wouldn't want someone to show up half memorized at opening night, right? Um, so I, I I hear you on that. If anyone um, is interested in this uh, further, I'm working with Rutledge on developing a book. Should be out in probably a year and a half or so. so just keep an eye out for it. Uh, there'll be more tips about how to estimate and how to work that stuff into it. I think it will be uh, hopefully helpful. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you. Can you share with me any of your, uh, one or two of your favorite stories from your career so far that like funny hysterical moments or horror stories or impactful moments that you've had? Um, sure. Uh, you know, when it, when it comes to man, just bring it up. It's like, which story do you want? <laughs> um, 
one of the things that I like to tell, this is a, one of the things where I first understood the importance of communicating what's going on with the storytelling, right? So I was working on this production and uh, in the design, there was a uh, false proscenium. And uh, then there was all these sort of uh, different drawings, right? The flats, platforms, and then there was a cart. It was very heavily drawn, really, really intense. And I, as a technical director, very you know early on learned that if the set designer has put a lot of detail work into a drawing, that's one they really care about, right? So the, the, you know, the portal didn't seem that important. So the show comes in over budget because it's early and we're having the conversation. To, well, so clearly we're going to have to cut the portal from the designer. And the designer started kicking back and saying, well, what, what do you mean we're cutting the portal? I said, well, you know, we're over budget and here's this and this, this. And they're going, no, the portal's really important. It's really bringing things in. There's tons of masking going on. I've got all this stuff off stage. We're going, we're going, we're unpacking and unpacking. And finally said, well, you know, I mean, this cart is so involved, you know? And they said, oh, well, just cut the cart. And I said, but you, you don't care about it? Like, no, I found that drawing from some other show. And that was just, I just threw it in here. You know, we don't need the cart. You can get rid of it if you need to. And that's when I figured out very quickly that um, you need to have a really clear understanding of the designer's goals and objectives. Um, because you'll start making assumptions that make an ass out of you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's one. Um, I we did uh, a production of um, Twelfth Night of Living Dead, which is uh, a play that uh, it, it was. I worked on a whole bunch of Twelfth Nights for like three years, and I did like three Twelfth Nights in a year or something like that and we started joking about like oh it's the show that won't die it's called Night of Living Dead um, and then I went, well let's try it so we adapted it in the 12th Living and we put on this production and this was the first heavy makeup show we got involved in there was a woman named Allie Getz who was our uh, makeup person and she she sort of taught me how to make guts that were really really and really visceral and you know we the stage was covered in blood we had a splash so it was out of control um but the thing is at the end of the show you have to strike right so we got to take the scenery up and it's like stuck to the floor like there's huge things of congealed <laughs> fake blood everywhere right and like we're like scenery's ripping itself apart to the stuck guts and everything so uh, since then, I have taken a hazardous waste operations and emergency response class, which taught me how to create controlled zones. And uh, I've been able to use that to help limit when blood gets used in show. And so uh, I guess what I'm saying is that that's when I learned that literally anything you learn anywhere will have an application in view. Um, I, uh, when I was going to take the safety class, I was, getting, I was becoming a safety instructor. And we're talking about all these different topics. And this is really advanced stuff, right? Like there's heads of mining industry are there, heads of the you know, gaming industry are there. They're all like in charge. And they start talking about, you know, okay, we're going to deal with toxic gases. And I'm like, oh yeah, we deal with that in theater, right? Because, you know, fog and CO2 and all that. And they go, okay, we're going to deal with hazardous chemicals. I'm like, oh yeah, we deal with that in theater because of the paints and everything. I'm like, all right, we're going to deal with, you know, we're handling things and moving heavy stuff. I'm like we deal with that in theater. And like every single topic that came up, I would say, oh, yeah, we deal with that in theater. Yeah. And 
I had this guy from the mining industry say, man, I had no idea theater was so dangerous. <laughs> so uh, just a reminder that, uh, you know, we're brave just for being in the industry. I, uh, I want to go back just a quick second. Um, when you were talking about, um, about uh, wellness and, and, and self-care and, and avoiding burnout, what do you do to take care of yourself? Mm. What do I, <laughs> I was talking to my friends about writing this book and they were like, Oh wow. So, uh, you know, when do you think the book will be done? How far along are you? I'm like, well, it's funny. I'm having a hard time finding time. To write it. <laughs> um, it, it, what I find myself, I, I spent a long time as a workaholic. That's part of the reason why this is so personal to me. I'm, um, part of the reason that I went into this research was, you know, self-preservation. Right. I was facing these problems, too. And it meant that, you know, your question is really good one because it meant that I didn't have a lot of self-care infrastructure. Right. Um, so what I but before I start listing what I do, I just want to say that um, everyone is going to have their own sort of answers to this. And it's really important not to judge them. Right. Some people will say my self-care is I'm going to go sit on a mountain doing yoga and it's like, wow, that's amazing. My self-care is sitting down and watching Netflix with a bowl of popcorn on my stomach until I fall asleep until the next day. And you know what? Both of them are equally elegant and valid yep, because right. both of them are doing the job of like giving you what you need, right? So I just want to start with that. Right. Um, the things that I'm finding sustain me, uh, for brief little moments, it'll be just moments of disconnect, right? Like going outside, and like, uh, I would, um, for my break, I just walk outside. It sounds stupid. Like it's like, <laughs> what? But like just leaving the building and breathing fresh air and like having sun hit you is just that that's sort of a short term fix. Um, I'm a huge, huge advocate of massage or any of those sort of things where, um, you commit time and resources to just shutting down and having someone take all the evil out of your body and throwing it somewhere else it's just like an exorcism of the back you know um i know i know that research and a lot of anecdotal information that i've heard and tammy honestly will be the first person to tell you this uh i've heard that exercise is a really good self-care thing i've heard it <laughs> i haven't really gotten into it yet i keep thinking i should so there's that one i keep trying to get amped about it um but uh, right now, at this time in my life, time with my kids um, is sometimes really restorative. Sometimes it's a reason for needing to go and decompress and get a massage or something like that. But in general, like they're 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 so um, up here at this gig I'm doing at the summer stock. I'm away from them for a week at a time, and coming back and seeing them is just uh, super helpful. Um, I'm uh, very extroverted, so time with my friends, time with my wife to um, socialize, uh, times to just like talk through what is going on is really rejuvenatory for me. Um, reading used to be, then I went to grad school and now all I read is management books. And like, it's really broken me. I need to like get back. If people have good recommendations, let me know. Cause I gotta get back into it. Um, but uh, you know, the other thing that I'll say is um, dedicated vacation time. Um, there's, there's a, a bank out there 
that uh, has a policy that they will pay you $2,000 to take vacation. Like on top of your pay, they will give you two grand towards a vacation. It has to be out of the state so that you are like getting away. And the catch is while you are on vacation, you may not check your email and you may not answer the phone, like your, your work email. And, and if you do, like if you go on the vacation and you check your work email, they want the $2,000 back, right? So like they are very serious. But what they found is that period of disconnect is massive. And you'll hear this, right? People go like, oh my God, I went camping. And oh yeah, how was it? Well, the weather was terrible. It, the ground was rocky, but you know, my cell phone didn't work and it was amazing. <laughs> and I think that like, that's something we need to know is to, to take time to just shut it all down. Um, God, I can't remember. I think it's Renee Brown. Um, th there's this uh, discussion that says, there's a, a glass of water, right? Half, like they'll have half a glass of water on a table and you'll think they're gonna be asking, oh, is it half or half empty or whatever. What they'll do is they'll, they'll pick it up. So you can pick up this glass of water. In fact, you can hold it, no problem. But if I ask you to hold it right there for three hours, your arm is gonna lose its feeling and you're gonna be in agony, right? Until you put it down and then you'll be able to pick it back up again, right? And it's, it's a great uh, uh, metaphor, I think, for putting down the work day and like separating from it, just turn it off for a period of time and then put it back on when you, when you sort of rejuvenated and refreshed yourself. Um, so those are all bits. Um, I'm also a huge fan of what I call uh, maintenance therapy. It's, it's like, you're not going with a goal. You're just setting up time with the therapist to just go and chat it out and have a, a someone who is not connected to anything going on, listen to you and say, huh, yeah, that does sound messed up, right? Like just that is super helpful. Um, so yeah, th those are a, a bunch of things I'm wrestling with, but I'm always looking for more, right? I'm always looking for new and exciting things to try out. Um, I hear yoga is a good one. I think me doing yoga is going to be a little fun to film. Uh, but at the same time, um, those are those are uh, some of the different things that I hear people doing and that um, I'm trying to look into doing. So. No, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your uh, your uh, caveat at the beginning that, you know, that what works for one person doesn't work for another. But um, I, I have really enjoyed hearing all the different uh, teachers who I've spoken to and, and teaching artists that I've talked to and, and the different things that they do. And the feedback I've gotten is that people appreciate hearing that. So I appreciate all that you just said and, and yeah. all that you're attempting to do and not attempting to do, but still sharing with us. So thank you. Um, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, I also uh, video games, board game night, Dungeons and Dragons, any of that stuff that sort of gets you engaging with other people, I think helps a lot. too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, what is a what's what is a resource that you can recommend for us theater teachers that you think we should have um, either on our bookshelves or bookmark on a website or? Sure, um, man. You know, there's so many real good ones. Um, there's the uh, stock scenery handbook is a really great one to just get the infrastructure on and start mm -hmm. with. Um, if you're getting if you're you're getting into you know, more advanced concepts. Um, check out uh, uh, Rutledge and Focal Press. They have a whole bunch of, um, you know, toolkits for technical director, toolkit for costume designer, to, uh, make, you know, makeup 
uh, I just saw the production management tool kit came out um, with my buddy Rich who wrote it. It's fabulous. Um, so there's a lot of really great uh, literature that's, that's a little more advanced, but especially if you find yourself in the role and you're taking the lead on a lot of these things, learning from these experts uh, out of USITT and out of uh, these uh, universities is a really great way to get there. Um, but I also think it's really important to keep books on the shelf that are going to serve as inspiration. Mm. Um, you know, take a look at architecture books, right? Uh, you know, things that you just see interesting things coming together and start trying to explore why those things are coming together. Um, there's a guy named John Saltonstall who's out at Astound Group. Um, and that's a, that's a huge company. He's helping with these like massive, massive companies. And he talks about um, most of the curtain work that we do. You can get these old like 1950s curtain building books at like uh, you know, thrift stores that are the concepts that you need to make these really cool buntings and dressings and all the things that we're trying to do that we think we have to go to Rosebrand to buy. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of can't think of a book out there that's not a good idea to keep around. Um, maybe digitize it so it's not taking up too much paper and space. <laughs> um, I know that uh, another digital resource, um, I, I, I want to say, God, I can't remember where, but um, they recently uploaded all of the 1960s sewing patterns that were ever released digitally and made it open to everybody. I think it was the Smithsonian who did it. Wow. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but like, you know, it, there, there's sort of no better than the original, right? right. Um, so checking that out. Uh, man, Facebook pages, you know, uh, um, if you're looking for um, different focus groups, they're all out there. Um, so uh, identifying those, check out the USITT commissions. Uh, the Engineering Commission, Technical Direction Commission, they're going to have resources. Um, TV&T is a technical theater uh, magazine that's out there that's really good. Uh, that'll uh, sort of deal with a lot of technical topics out there. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot out there. And it, the other thing is don't beat yourself up, right? There's a billion trillion sources of information out there. If you find one you like, stick with it. Mm -hmm. you, know, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Ask around, see what people are reading. Um, I just heard that uh, there's something called the, uh, I think it's the assistant line designers handbook or something like that. People are talking about for electrician work being really useful. Um, so yeah, there's a lot. Just find me on Facebook, hit me up. I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, my final question for you is what are your parting words of wisdom for uh, teachers or artists going into what we do and, and how to keep a long career? Okay. No one's ever asked me this before. It's really interesting. All right. Um, first of all, remember that no one is bringing ex your experience to bear except you. And everything that we are looking for as storytellers comes through a lens of our own experience, right? So understand that that has value, right? If you're a performer, you're probably seeing some of the best in the world on TV and film and, you know, on the main stage and what have you. And don't for a moment compare yourself to that person, right? Learn from that person, idolize that person, come up with your own perspective from that person, um, develop because of that person and the gift that they've given you in terms of their 
or performance and experience. But don't shy away from the industry going, oh, I could never be blank. Because you're right, you never could be that person because you'll never have their experience. But what you can be is you with your experience. Um, the other thing I will say is that um, understand your own expectations for yourself and give yourself a little grace and forgiveness about it. You know, if people say, oh my God, we're gonna go see the show. It's gonna be amazing. Like, that does sound amazing. I'm exhausted. I need to go home and lay down. And you decide to go home and lay down. Don't beat yourself up about that decision. Right? You're making the best decision for you. If you decide to go out and party with everybody and have a great time and see the show, and you come home and you're exhausted, and you're happy with that decision, that's great. Don't beat yourself up for not giving yourself the time off, you know? Like, live with your decisions and enjoy them. And um, I would also say, don't expect that um, whenever you look into the mirror or what have you, that you're going to see the same person. Um, I spend a lot of time looking in the mirror, like this is sort of off track, but like I spend a lot of time looking in the mirror thinking that I'm fat. And then the next day I look in the mirror and I don't think I'm fat. And then the next day I do. And I guarantee you I'm not gaining and losing 20 pounds in like 24 hours. It's my own mindset, right? It's where I'm at. So like, just listen to yourself, engage with yourself, and um, don't let anyone tell you you can't have everything that you want. There may be some sacrifices you have to make along the way, and I don't mean like sacrifice friends and relationships to be famous. I mean like, you might say it's important to me to have a family, so I'm not going to go tour. Right. And don't beat yourself up about that. Right. You might say I have been touring, and I'm not going to have a family don't let people push you around about that you get to make the choices that are right for you and you could you might say i'm going to tour and i'm going to have a family and it's all going to work right we're going to find a way to work it. that's awesome right just give yourself the space to find the answers that work for you and, and don't let other people push you around on because i think that's what we end up doing is like we spend so much time hoping the audience likes it that we spend this time hoping that everyone around us likes the choices we're making. and really all that matters is that you like your own choices and, and that you own your own agency does that make sense? It, it does. Thank you. You um, you are um, saying very beautifully the words that I tell my my undergrads all the time because they love, <laughs> love, love, and live to compare themselves to everyone else in the class and what mm-hmm. this person is doing and what this person is doing and I'll never be this person and I'm like, you're right. You never will. So why don't you focus on being you? Because that's you can be the best you there is, and that's all I can ask of you. Well, and this transcript for how this was going to go is really helpful. Thank you. I'm glad to say everything that you wanted me to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's great. So thank you, Brian. I have enjoyed talking with you, and I really, really appreciate all the all the insight you gave. Um, and I, I, I hope to stay in touch with you because I there's so much more I want to learn from you, and then hopefully I'll have you back on at some point. So. Oh, Jimmy, this has been an absolute pleasure, and you're you're a real joy to talk to. So, I mean, even if it's off camera or off <laughs> off recording, off. let's hang out. It'll be a really great time. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you have a wonderful evening, and uh, thank you again for talking with me. You betcha. Take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Brian Smallwood, for joining me. I really appreciated everything you had to say and really enjoyed our conversation. I am very much looking forward to you also talking with my theater education students, my seniors, uh, in November about burnout. So I, I 
thank you for reaching out to me and uh, expressing interest to be on the show. And I appreciate all the words of wisdom that you had for us. This is typically the time when you would hear from one of my student teachers, but things are really in full swing for them right now. And they are just in the throes of, of directing, of tech directing, of teaching, of lesson planning, of working on their ed TPA. Uh, so they have had a very full week and I uh, intentionally let them enjoy their weekend and did not check in with them on the phone. So uh, we'll, we'll check in with them next time. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for always uh, checking in on what we're doing here and uh, contributing online and through our social media. Um, we do have uh, a new segment coming up. I've had several entries come through of some things to talk about in our So This Just Happened segment. So I'm very excited to bring you that in the next coming week or two. Uh, you are welcome to go on our website at www.thedtalks.com where you can click on So This Just Happened there in the website and you can submit your own scenarios, questions, or situations for us to read on the show and to discuss. I will do that with my very good friend Miriam Kirkendall. And uh, if you want to join us for that conversation, you can leave, let us know that as well. Um, we want to talk about that and uh, address any of those concerns or questions that you have and uh, just bounce some ideas off of each other to, to give some, some possible resolutions and uh, uh, advice for how to handle some things in your classroom. So please check that out. It's called So This Just Happened. Our website, again, is www.thedtalks.com. That's T-H-E-D-T-A-L-K-S.com. You can find all of our transcripts of our our past episodes. You can find all of the resource lists from all the teachers that have been on the show and uh, lots of other information and definitely ways that you can subscribe, rate, and review the show as well as share it with any of those theater education students or teachers in your life. Go on any of your favorite podcast providers, Apple Podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, AnyPod, and tune in. You can subscribe to us on any of those podcast providers and uh, again subscribe rate and review us and share that with someone in your life thank you so much for joining me you can always email me at fedtalkspodcast at gmail.com where you can uh, submit topics uh, topic ideas for the show you can let me know if you want to be a guest on the show I am looking for some guests coming up so I'm looking to hear from from all of you about that or if you just want to give me some feedback on this show, I always welcome that as well. You can find us on all your favorite social media on Twitter at Theater Ed Talks, on Tumblr at thedtalks.tumblr.com. You can find us on Facebook at Thed Talks, on Instagram at Thed Talks Podcast, and again, our website, www.thedtalks.com. Thank you, Joel Hamlin and Joshua Schusterman, for the use of your original music, Magnetize and Flip the Record, that we use here on the show. I'm very grateful to you guys for that. Uh, and I'm thankful for you for tuning in each week and listening. Thank you so much for all that you do for our students out there and uh, all that you do for theater education. Till next week, I hope you have a fantastic week and that uh, you are taking care of yourselves and loving what you're doing. Have a great week. <laughs>